0: So, um, this year, 2023, we've been focusing on the subject of the kingdom of God. And we're going to continue that into the autumn, which has been wonderful. But over the summer, I've been asked to introduce a little mini-series, which goes by the subject of what is Jesus doing now? Um, We obviously tend to focus... Um, our attention in the church and rightly so on Jesus's life, on his death, on his resurrection and all the things that these accomplish. We've been singing about so much of that today. But after the resurrection came the ascension and this is also of great importance for us to understand as the people of God. So I was just thinking about our sort of calendar year within Citygate Church. Um, we love to celebrate Christmas um, in on a secret, the level of planning in the office. I think even this week I overheard some of my team members off to go and have a Christmas planning meeting. Isn't that impressive? Because we want as a church to not only have a chance to invite people in at a time of year when they're kind of really open to it, but also as the people of God, we want to learn and focus and think about the profound truth of the incarnation, which we'll come back to later. On Easter, that period of time, again, We love uh, on Good Friday to particularly remember the cross, remember all that that accomplished, and three days later on Easter Sunday to celebrate that Jesus has come back to life. He's no longer in the grave, he's alive. And so we celebrate. Now, what we've not ever celebrated whilst I've been at CityGate, and I don't think I've ever celebrated in a church particularly, is that 40 days after Easter Sunday, it's tradition in churches across the world and through time to actually celebrate the ascension. It's because in Acts it explains to us that Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days And then he was taken up into glory. Now, I had a cursory look online to find out how some of the ways that churches have celebrated this in different ways around the world. Um, Anyway, I found out that a lot of people, their Ascension feast will involve eating birds. Um, because of the idea that birds fly, and Jesus likewise was taken up, so there we go there 's a the thing we know uh, i found out that in Germany they take it to a new level. Not only do they have birds that they cook, but then they make it into a pie that they make into the shape of a bird so that 's quite exciting and this one I liked much more was the idea that apparently in lots of places, they will climb a mountain. Now, I love to climb a mountain, so this sounds like a great excuse. You get to climb a mountain because Jesus took his disciples up the Mount of Olives. Um, and have a picnic and a celebration there. So, I mean, I hope you know. I feel like I've missed out a little bit, um, but really, we're not worried about climbing a mountain today. What we're thinking about, though, is the profound truth of the ascension of Jesus. And do we know what that's about? So, first of all, I just want to say, actually, the amount of accounts in the Bible about the ascension are very small. But as I read in a commentary, it's constantly assumed and its significance is stressed time and time again. So we're gonna begin by just reading what did the disciples say happened? And if we turn to the account in Luke 24, it says this. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, that's on the Mount of Olives, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And whilst he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. In an account in Acts, it's also explained that as he went up, a cloud obscured him in the sky. But what's interesting, is as well as seeing in the New Testament what happened? as it were on earth from the perspective of the disciples who were with him as he ascended we also get a glimpse into what happened when he arrived as it were in heaven and we're picking up our key text for today which is Ephesians 1 verse 20 to 23 it begins slightly in the previous verse the power that power is the same as the mighty strength that he, that's the father, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head of everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so we see this glimpse of what happened as Jesus enters heaven. He is seated by the Father at his right hand. He's given rule above everything else and everyone else. Everything is put under his feet, subjected to him. And he's appointed as head of the church for whom it says he rules. How amazing. So we get this glimpse of what happens as Jesus ascended but actually is exalted by the Father. Now what's interesting is the verses before which we really won't have time to go into in depth at all. But Paul is writing in this context to the Ephesians, and he's praying for them. In fact, let's read it. Um, So Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, he lists a number of things we're gonna jump to, his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he goes into the verses we've read, that power's the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And so we see Paul trying to explain and saying to the believers in Ephesus that he is praying for them to know God's power, God's power which is in them, I'm working for them. But he says, the best way I think, or at least this is my understanding, he's saying the best way that I can explain what God's power is like is where we see it in its truest measure. And that is in two great and extraordinary acts. Firstly, in the resurrection, that he raised Jesus from death to life. And secondly, that he elevated him from earth to heaven in the ascension and exaltation and seated him at his right hand. And I want to share with you a quote which also touches on what these two great acts accomplished. Murray Harris, who's a New Testament scholar, says this, the resurrection proclaims he lives and that forever. The exaltation and the ascension proclaims he reigns and that forever. That's amazing, isn't it? So can you turn to the person next to you, and let's first of all say, "He lives and that forever." He forever. <laughs> and now turn again, maybe to the other side, and say, "He reigns and that forever." brilliant um so i've been thinking about the jesus story and how we frame it because as i said we often focus on his life death and resurrection but i want to suggest that it's helpful for us to have a sort of broader view so i want to suggest um in the first place that jesus is the one who has always reigned he existed before time itself He is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit and he co-existed and co-reigned with them for all eternity. But then, as we were singing earlier, sorry, could we have the first slide for that? Then, as we were singing earlier, there's a point where Jesus stepped in. He stepped in. Philippians 2 says it really well. It talks about the fact that Jesus came low, he humbled himself and he was made in human likeness. He was found in appearance as a man. So the one who'd reigned in glory for all time clothed himself with humanity, remaining fully God but becoming also fully man. He becomes the God-man. And he enters earth and he becomes a little baby and one who has to learn and grow and lives upon this earth for 30 years in obscurity. What a mystery, what a mystery of incarnation that Jesus came so low. But it doesn't end there because he comes lower still. And as it says in Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So after three years of ministry, he forfeits his life and he dies for us. He goes from life into the grave, from life to death for our sake, carrying our sin and our shame and our punishment. So low, the one from glory comes so low, but the father intervenes. (laughs) Hallelujah. And the father demonstrates his power in this. First of all, on the third day there's resurrection, and Jesus is raised from death to life. And then, 40 days later, he is ascended. He ascends and he's exalted and lifted up from earth back to heaven. And so, there we find in this amazing symmetry, now he continues his reign. He continues his reign in glory. He retakes, as it were, his absolutely rightful place, but it is evident to all that he is the one who is worthy of that place. He's been perfected through his suffering. And as Tim was saying to me this week, it means that every blessing that in his place of king he now dispenses, every blessing he has won for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And most amazingly, I think, Is do you know what? He is still the God-man. He's still the God-man, but reigning. There's now a human being in the Godhead, reigning over all things. He reigns over all time. He reigns over all things. He is truly the King of kings. Yeah, that's true. Amen. So I just wanted to focus on for a few moments on this phrase that he's seated at the right hand of God, which we read in Ephesians. It said the Father seats him or seated him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Well, it's actually referring to a verse in the Psalms, in Psalm 110. Verse one apparently is the most quoted, most referenced Psalm in the New Testament, and it says this: "The Lord says to my Lord." Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so we know that this place at the right hand, it's a bit like the phrase we have of the right hand man. (laughs) He is the one in the place of supremacy, of the highest authority at the Father's right hand and I wanted to pick up on the fact that it says he sat down. Because if I'm honest, in my mind, when people take a role of leadership, it often is that they stand up. But here, and time and time again in the New Testament, it talks about the fact that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. And that's what's being quoted from this Psalm 110. So why does he sit down? And I just want to make one point really quickly. In Hebrews, the writer makes it really clear that Jesus sitting down was partly one of the reasons was because he had completed his work of redemption. He sat down because, and the Hebrews writer takes time to contrast, there were kingly priests or priests back in the old covenant and they were utterly inadequate. They had to not only make sacrifices on behalf of the people, before they could do that, they had to make sacrifices for their own sins. They had to make sacrifices day after day. They had to make sacrifices year after year to cover the people's sins. But the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus, when he'd offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. He sat down because as he declared on the cross, it is finished. The work was done. Everything that needed to be paid had been paid by our saviour. So there's a completeness in his atoning work for us. But secondly, and really more salient to our topic today, which is about Jesus reigning, is the fact that when he sat down, it's indicative of the, of the fact that actually he was being in that moment enthroned. It's about enthronement. So, isn't this fab that I get to teach this on a year where just a few months before we all got to see a coronation that hadn't happened for 70 years? So marvelous timing. So, back on the 6th of May, I'm sure you, most of you, would have turned on your television at some point, and if you watched the coronation service, you would have seen that actually there's various stages. A lot of things happened, um, but the key things happened as King Charles was sat on the coronation chair, St. Edward's coronation chair, which is the oldest like English throne, back from the 1300s. So it was there, actually, that he received the anointing. It was there that he was invested. Do you remember? He was given like the orb and the sword and all these things that stood for power. It was actually there that the crown was placed on his head. And then he, he did actually move to a different throne for the enthronement and for people to pay homage. But again, there was a sitting on the throne. So I think, honestly, this is something I really hadn't grasped before. But what we're seeing here is Jesus sitting down because he is being enthroned. The father is declaring, this is my son and he is the king over all kings, the Lord over all all lords he's giving him that highest place and as it said in our text every other thing everything else comes low comes under him the risen king but I felt like I wanted to say this Jesus sat down but he didn't sit back okay? He sat down, but he didn't sit back. It's not like he's just stayed there, sort of going, I finished the work of atonement, nice job, and now is in a passive place. That is an utter misrepresentation of our saviour. He is ruling and reigning. He is interceding for us. He's advocating for us. He's sending his church and he's waiting. And actually, these are topics that we're gonna be covering in the next four weeks, looking at how is Jesus continuing to minister in the sanctuary, in the heavens, for his people now. And he is, he is active, he's alive and reigning in an active, proactive way. In fact, when Stephen is getting stoned, he looks up. And interestingly, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And in Hebrews, there's a point where it talks about the fact that Jesus is still, is now, now he's at the right hand of the throne of majesty that he now serves in the sanctuary. He serves in the sanctuary. So he's still ministering to us. And that's really the focus of this series, isn't it? This mini-series is what's Jesus doing now? (laughs) And one of the things is he's reigning. So, I just want to make um, a few little comments on how we understand Jesus' reign, how we understand his kingdom. And because we've been in this subject of the kingdom of God, we've heard, I'm sure, numbers of times about the fact that the kingdom is now, but not yet. It's now, but not yet. So we know that Jesus on the cross, there was a decisive victory over the enemy, the decisive victory over the enemy. The war, as it were, was won. But at at this point, his victory is not fully manifest in the earth. It's fully manifest in heaven. But we still pray let your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. We still act, don't we, as the people of God to see his kingdom advancing. And so we recognize there's battles, as it were, and skirmishes still, and sometimes things happen, and we, we know the reality of life, the rawness of life, that tough things happen. Now, as Tim was reminding us even earlier there's certainty and there's mystery. We don't always understand how it can be with Jesus reigning, that yet still things happen that we know are clearly not things he desires or things he takes any pleasure in at all. He hates death and destruction, sickness and abuse. He hates it. He hates it. And there's a difference. There's something about the fact that things are permitted. It doesn't mean in any way that he's a direct cause of evil. That's absolutely clear in scripture that he's never the direct cause of evil. It's absolutely clear he never takes pleasure in evil. And the other certainty we have is not only that he reigns over it all, that one day he will make all things right. All things right. One day, no more death. One day when he comes back, the enemy who's still causes havoc on this earth, will be thrown into the pit and finally completely finished. Death, which still ravages, will be finally defeated by our glorious king. There'll be no more death and there'll be no more suffering, no more sickness. Hallelujah for that day. But the other wonderful truth is our reigning Lord, our reigning Lord. Remember I said he's the God-man. He's the one who, whilst reigning, also sees and knows everything. He sees and he knows the battles we're in. He sees and he knows when there's pain and when there's suffering. And he not only reigns, promising that one day he'll bring all things right, all things right, but he reigns also as one who knows what it is to have suffered, who knows what it is to have walked that hard path. And he's one who comes close, and he hears every prayer, and he wraps around us with his comfort. It always feels kind of almost, I I find, trite to try and explain. I know um, for for our family, we had a time five years ago when I went through really difficult things with health. There was a um, renal cancer diagnosis, uh, an operation to deal with that, and also problems with acute pancreatitis that went on for numbers of years. And I just remember in the midst of that, there were points where um, you know, I nearly died and had to be resuscitated. And just there was a confidence and a peace that came from knowing that he reigns, that he knows, that he understands, that he will make everything right, that even if you know the worst things happened, that... <laughs> That actually my family were in his hands, in his care. There's such a comfort for us as the people of God in the midst of the mystery and the reality of that. There's such a comfort in knowing who he is, who he is, and that he is with us. He is for us something of these tensions we even see in the scripture that we've been looking at. Do you remember I said in Psalm 110, it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in our key text in Ephesians, it says, God placed all things under his feet. So it's like a past tense thing there. But then in Hebrews, it says, he Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And in 1 Corinthians, it says, then the end will come, this is when Jesus comes back, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power that's all that's supposed to him. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. So somehow we hold together this tension. Everything is under his feet. That, that's determined. That is the final outcome. And yet, he is putting everything under his feet. One day, fully, everything, death included, will be, you know, done away with. Everything under his feet in all its fullness. Just another comment to make about his reigning is just to say, in Scripture, it's really clear that an understanding that he reigns never. Leads the people of God to a passivity or fatalism. It never leads them to kind of think, oh, well, if he reigns, well, it doesn't matter what I do. That's definitely not what scripture bears out. What we see is that the early believers prayed. They prayed like it made a difference because it does. They acted like it made a difference, and that's because it does. And again, there's an element of mystery here, but we know the truth is that we have the gift of being able to make real choices that have real consequences. My brother used to live in the Middle East. He lived there for six years or so. And um, notorious, he was in Istanbul, um, and notorious in that area um, were these minibus taxis which would drive around in a, really, in a way that was quite reckless. I think he even saw them driving the wrong way up a motorway on one occasion. Anyway, you took your life in your hands getting into them, but they had a sticker across the back that said, Allah will protect. <laughs> so there was a kind of like a belief system that was almost like, well, I'll do whatever, you know, what will be will be. That is absolutely not what we believe as Christians. We take responsibility and we know that actually we're those empowered to work with the Father. And as I say, our choices matter. Right, I would like to go back to our key text, but actually slipping back a few verses beforehand, which I've already touched on, and read to you from Ephesians 1 17 to 23. Now, as I said earlier, Paul was praying for the Ephesians church. And he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. There's a lot of words there, so it can be hard to cut through it all. But this is, as I said, what Paul is writing before he goes on to explain this great power that the Father holds. And really, his prayer for the Ephesians church is, I I think, a twofold prayer. He's praying, first of all, sorry, just to say, he's praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. The heart in the scriptures is like the very sort of core of your being. He's saying, let everything of who you are have understanding of these things. And he prays for there to be a spirit of wisdom and revelation given to them, the Holy Spirit. Because actually, these are things we can't know outside of his revelation, Okay, but these are the two things he prays for. He prays that they would know him, that they would know God because of this revelation. They would know him. And I wanna pray for us in a moment, for us to know him and to know him as the risen savior. Some of us might have grown up in churches where actually the image that we saw most often in a church building might have been actually Jesus on a cross, That might be our default. That might be almost what we go to. And I wanna pray for us to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know he's not dead. He's not still on a cross. The cross is empty. The grave is empty. And he is now ascended in heaven. And we want to be the people of God who have a big view of our mighty, powerful savior who is now the exalted king above all other things. That's the first prayer. The second prayer is that he prays for the Ephesians, that they would know what they have in Jesus because of Jesus. And one of the three things he prays for is that they would know this incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, for those of you in this room who know the Lord, that incomparably great power is well and truly at work in you. That is why you are here. That power that raised him from death and seated him in heavenly places, that same power has raised you. Where you were dead as sins, you are now alive because of that great power. You're alive to God. And you, in some mysterious way, are already seated in heavenly places, sharing in rule and reign with him extraordinary. His power is already at work in you. But what if we really took hold of the truth that we as the people of God have this great power, this immeasurably great power at work in us? It's a power that not only can do the things that we might think of when we think of power, it can bring about miracles and it can bring peace where there's Um, division and hostility. It can bring joy where there's sadness and difficulty. It can bring perseverance where things are overwhelming and it would be the easiest thing in the world to give up. This power at work in us is life transforming, not only in our lives, allowing us to live victoriously, overcoming things and walking through things. It's that kind of power, and it's also a power that we can impart to those around us and have huge impact in the situations and the circumstances and the life of people around us? What would it look like if we really began to have revelation of the fact that this immeasurably great power is inside of us? Before I pray, I just wanted to share a little story. It's about my adorable son. He's 19 now, And in the UK, back at the time when he was born, um, the government would start a a sort of child trust fund. They gave 250 pounds that was put in a fund. Anyway, um, it's tax-free, and I'm not financially astute enough to know, but by the time he was 18, it had got to 524 pounds. There we go. However, my son, at the age of 18, um, was not following the Lord and was making some interesting life choices. Shall we say it like that? And so, when he was 18, we decided it would be extremely prudent not to let him know that he had this account with £524 in it. Okay, because it was now his. It fully belonged to him. He had right to access it. He could take all the money out the next day and we couldn't touch it. But... The thing was, he didn't know. He didn't know. So at the time, he'd he just finished some studies. He was searching for a job. He was living at home, so he was fine, but he had no sort of expendable money, you know? And, um, and so he would, he, he was known, I found out later, to go even to news agents and he might have a pound and he'd try and negotiate so we could get like two packs of biscuits for a pound because he was hungry because like so limited were his resources. Or sometimes we might get a phone call asking if we could transfer some money so he could get a bus home. That's how, you know like he didn't have that one pound 70 and sometimes we'd say darling it feels like time for a nice long walk so he was having long walks and eating the most rubbish biscuits um for example when he wanted a snack because he didn't know he didn't know he had 524 pounds in a bank account now funnily enough this week we went with him and he got out his 524 pounds He's in a very different place. Hallelujah. He's in a very different place. New Day last year he gave his life to the Lord. He's studying. Hallelujah. He's studying he's studying um, jazz performance as a drummer um, at university. And so having just finished his first year of university, he's actually being able to spend that money not on more expensive business biscuits and more bus rides, but he's actually able to spend it on a drum kit, which is significant so that he can gig and earn money that way, which is wonderful. Anyway, it leads me... (laughs) It leads me, though, to make a parallel. Aren't we sometimes like those who are scrabbling around trying to find the cheapest biscuits in the store and going on very long and arduous walks because we don't know what we have in him. And that's what the writer of Ephesians was saying. You need to know, we need to know as the people of God that we are those who are called and we are those who have a rich inheritance and we are those who have this immeasurably great power at work in us that great power is for us who believe and so I'd like to invite you to stand band do you want to come and play and I would love to pray for us As I said, we need Holy Spirit power for these things. We need Holy Spirit power and revelation to know what we have and to know who he is. So I'm not going to pray anything extraordinary. I'm praying what I've already been teaching. But I want to encourage you to put out your hands and let's welcome him. We say, Holy Spirit, we love you. We love that you are the one who can give revelation and wisdom We love that what we can't understand in and of ourselves, you enable us to know in the core of our being. And Jesus, we want to say we're sorry where we've made you small. We want to say we're sorry if we've mostly still thought of you as the one hanging on the cross. We want to recognize today that Jesus, you are alive and you are exalted. And you are the King who reigns forever. And we say, Holy Spirit, would you come right now and break through lies in our hearts and give us revelation that grows and grows from this day so that we know that you are the risen King for all eternity. And we honour you. We honour you, risen King Jesus, exalted King Jesus the one at the right hand of the Father, the one reigning in majesty. We honour you above all other names. Above all other names. And Holy Spirit, we just want to thank you too that you have done extraordinary things in our life through the work of Jesus. We want to thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the deposit in us, guaranteeing our inheritance. And we thank you that our inheritance is so much bigger and so much greater than we've begun to know. And we say we're sorry where we have thought our inheritance was small. And we want to say we're sorry for where we have thought our inheritance was only for the age to come and didn't understand that some of it Much of it is available for us now. And so right now, God, I just want to say, would you come and give us heart revelation of the truth that you, you, Jesus, have given us this incomparably great power that it is in work in us, that Father, this same power that raised Jesus from the dead, This same power that exalted him has made us alive and is making us alive. That this same power that's raised him is enabling us to reign with him increasingly and to step into the authority that we have in you as the people of God. And so I just bless you, people of God. I bless you, City Gate Church today, to know in increasing measure this immeasurable power, this immeasurable power that is yours from the Father through the Son revealed by the Holy Spirit deposited in your hearts. His power is in you. Amen. Amen. Let's worship Jesus.